0: So Money, episode 1525 Living Your Best Life When You're the Effing Worst, with Laura Belgray, author of the new book, Tough Titties. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30 minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh yourself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
1: All these things that I was not supposed to do led me right to where I am supposed to be. And so I am, I am for taking that windy path and being okay with your life, even if it doesn't hit the milestones that you're supposed to in the order that you're supposed to, you know, get, um, get a great job, move up the ladder, find the one, have kids, et cetera, et cetera. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Sharabi. Monday, June
0: 12th, 2023. I am back from Puerto Rico. And let me tell you, my keynote rocked it. It wasn't perfect because what is, uh, but I'm excited that I was able to share this new talk of mine about uh, fear and money from the Healthy State of Panic book, which you can pre-order now at ahealthystateofpanic.com. And I did this in front of an incredible audience at the Our Money, Our Power Financial Freedom Summit in Puerto Rico, hosted by none other than Janice Torres, who is the creator of Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and just a force in the Latina community helping women of color Make that money. And I'm back with something new to celebrate. And that is my very, very dear friend Laura Belgray's new book, Tough Titties, which comes out tomorrow. You know Laura. She's an email and copywriting expert, founder of Talking Shrimp, self-described, unapologetic, lazy person. And her memoir slash self-unhelp book, Tough Titties, comes out tomorrow. It's a memoir about a misfit. Laura, coming of age in the 80s and 90s, New York City, screwing up at life, but finally finding success with her first million dollar year at age 50. The book, as her husband calls it, is Loser Sex in the City. It's for you if you've ever felt behind in your life or your career, you've ever felt the pain of not fitting in. Laura's here to give us all permission to be ourselves unapologetically. Stay tuned for the end of the episode when I will share how you can win a copy of Tough Titties. I have several to give out, so make sure you listen to the episode, wait till the end, and hear those easy instructions. Here's Laura Belgray. Laura Belgray, welcome back to So Money, this time as the author of... Oh my gosh, this book, Tough Titties, on living your best life when you're the effing worst. Congratulations. How do you feel? How do you feel at
1: this stage? Uh, thank you so much, Varnoosh. I feel so many different things. I feel proud, like kind of a sense of surrealness that it actually exists after all these years of working on it. Like, oh, it's, it's a book. And who is this person with the book? And then also overwhelmed with all the things as you know, because you're on the same road, just a little behind me, there's an infinite number of things to do. There are infinite ways that you can throw everything at your success. And it's just like, where does it end? Where do you draw the line? Um, it doesn't. That's the, <laughs> that's, the,
0: that's the crappy part about all this is you never feel like you can just exhale and be like, I'm done. I did all the things that I was supposed to do to bring this book to life and have it be successful. (laughs) I remember when you first told me you wanted to write a book, it was at my book workshop. This was now, I want to say like 2017, 2018. Those years get really mm, confusing for me. Certainly this book has also been in you for your entire life. Like this is a book that is not just great with advice on how to, as you say, Succeed at life when you're the effing worst, Um, living your best life when you're the effing worst. We're going to get into some of those tactics, how you've done it so exceptionally, but it is a memoir. It's a series of essays that capture your comeuppance in New York City. Everybody knows I love a good New York City life story. Like I love when someone who was born here experienced it. A lot of us here are just like, new. we come with, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, but you like really roughed it in in the beginning and (laughs) have seen the wealth disparity grow. And anyway, let's start with who this book is for, I, I, <laughs> I was laughing because like if you're answering yes to this question, this book is for you. And here's the question. Ever feel stuck and behind in your life or career? That's kind
1: of everybody, right? Yes. You know what? I was just on another podcast, um, a Terry Cole's podcast, The Terry Cole Show. And we were talking about that exact same thing. She said she was at some conference, I think, where somebody asked, who in this room, and it was somebody big, I forget him, but who in this room feels like they are behind where they're supposed to be in life? And she said, every single hand in the room went up and it was like thousands of people. So I would agree with that, that that's pretty much all of us. I know very few people who feel like they're exactly where they are supposed to be or have surpassed it.
0: Right, right. But more specifically, this book is for those of us within that cohort who want you no, know, we kinda know what we want. We don't give two Fs about anything, but we're we kinda want a life to go at our pace. And we might make decisions that are counterculture. Like maybe like you, we don't want to have children, or maybe we don't want to work the typical nine to five, or maybe we do. And so this book is really and a permission slip as one of your um, – as I think it was Marie Forleo who, who, who gave you a great quote. Here she says, um, it's sort of a, a permission slip for being 100% you. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about Laura Belgray, the author, in terms of um, how are you the worst –
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst in so many ways. And it's funny because a lot of people will read the subtitle and say, but you're not the worst, meaning I'm not a bad person. And no, I'm not a bad person. But I feel like I'm someone who ends up saying, I'm so sorry, I'm the worst a whole lot. And I think throughout my life, I've had a lot of people say, oh, you're killing me, Belgray, um, because, because I am a professional disappointer and maybe don't do the things that I say I'm going to do, um, including for myself. Like, hey, everyone, I'm going to write a book. And then where's your book? You're killing me! Like, why yeah, are you writing yeah. your book? And just, I, I tend to be late. I really try not to be, but I have, uh, I think I have a lateness disability. I'm just going to call it that so that it's <laughs> official and and there are allowances made for me. Um, I, you know, <laughs> like I've gotten into toxic, willingly gotten into toxic, ill-advised relationships. Um, I'm no longer in that phase of my life. Thank God. I'm like in a very happy relationship, but entered into a long-term relationship with a married man in my, around 29, my early thirties, and just done a lot of things the wrong way and can't get like, to use an expression we used, I think in the nineties, can't get with the program in terms Mm -hmm. of like, you know, getting to work on time. I could, I survived corporate life for all of six months because I just couldn't, I couldn't follow the chain of command. I couldn't write in the voice that they wanted me to write in, which was that, which the boss called elegant and up here. I wanted everything to be in my voice and cheeky. And I could not for the life of me get there at 10 AM and then 9 AM. Uh, when they switch to summer hours. So those are some of the ways in which I feel like I am the worst. And
0: yet you are living your best life, which I want to get into as well. But why do you think the world is ready for this self-unhelp book as you title it? And your husband also calls it the uh, loser sex in the city. Another reason to read this book, because I think we all want that permission to do things our way, even if it is disappointing to others and not feel like we're any less better off or we have any less potential to achieve what we want to achieve. Why do you think this book is hitting such a positive chord? I mean, people, are <laughs> this book. really, they are. I mean, this is not Thank your typical, you, you know, cat- we don't even know where to categorize this book because it is yeah. so different than what is out there.
1: Yeah, because I've, I, I am really fearing that it'll be put in the how to category. And I don't want that because I say it's, it is not a how to, it's more of a how not to. How not and to. it's a how not to. And I think that it's striking a chord because people feel relieved When they hear someone say what they're thinking and admit that they do things wrong and that they go against the grain and cannot get with all the advice out there to, you know, wake up at five and then take a cold plunge and work out in the shower and. Right, <laughs> um, you know, all before nine a.m. Yes, yeah. everyone is pr- everyone is out there telling you to optimize, and even the way they tell you, to they think they're giving you permission, like it's okay to rest. It's not selfish to rest, but then they tell you how to schedule in your rest. And um, <laughs> I don't know, you're supposed to like all the all the advice out there about relaxing and being and and resting and getting enough sleep and fighting burnout all seems to be in the same vein as the hustle stuff and the grind stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just all one and the same. And I think people are relieved to hear someone say, I don't get it right. I screw up all the time. And there's wisdom in that. Can we be
0: completely honest? I mean, maybe you didn't realize in your 20s and maybe even your early 30s that what you were doing was leading up to living your best life. But for (laughs) those who feel like they're in the mess of things and maybe they are – the folks who are like, "Oh, you're you're killing me," you know they they hear that a lot in their <laughs> lives. What what do you want the message to for them to be like? Something that you wish you had recognized, maybe even earlier in your in your comeuppance in your career and also in your personal life as you were making choices that weren't the traditional choices.
1: Yeah, I think that one thing that I realized as I was writing the book, because I I really didn't know how it was gonna end, what it was gonna be while I was writing all these stories. Uh, I just knew that thematically, it was a lot of examples of me being a not supposed to person, doing things not the way I'm supposed to. And I realized by the end, like, wow, all these things that I was not supposed to do led me right to where I am supposed to be. And so I am, I am for taking that windy path and being okay with your life, even if it doesn't hit the milestones that you're supposed to in the order that you're supposed to, you know, get, um, get a great job, move up the ladder, find the one, have kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Some of us go through phases and take a more windy route. And uh, so I think that that would be my message to people: is that it's very likely all these not supposed to moments in your life are leading you to where you are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And just for example, me being late all the time, especially in my in my early twenties, that led to me meeting my best friend. There's a chapter called "Sorry, I'm Late," where because I was late to meet a friend for lunch at her job, um, she, you know, I got there and. Uh, this woman who was at the front desk said, oh my gosh, you must be Laura. Um, Susan was mad at you for being late. So she went to Bendel's to punish you and buy stockings and make you wait. So do you want a Diet Coke? And it's like, yes, please. And I sat there and talked with her. And by the time Susan came back, it was like, Susan who? This person was my new best friend and is still my best friend to this day and has been a part of my life ever since. And you know, read a, um, a portion of, the, of my wedding ceremony and was at my dad's funeral and burial and um, there for every milestone of my life. And that's all because I was late. Ooh. And so that's just one example. Also, um, the husband I just mentioned, who I met, person I met and married, I met through people that I had met when I was going out like it was my job, and um, that's all chronicled in a chapter that I won't name on your show. We'll just call it chapter nine.
0: Yes. Just in case,
1: (laughs) because we didn't tell anyone to have earmuffs on. Right. My kids sometimes listen to the podcast. (laughs)
0: Um, Right. Not as much as I'd probably like them to. Um, you call yourself a late bloomer, and uh, talk about how that manifested uh, to this now career that you have, where you are making seven figures, but maybe maybe not as early as a lot of us would think that would happen. You did this <laughs> at you did this as you were returning fifty years old, but also the beauty in what you do, which is you know you run uh, the Copy Cure with Marie Forleo. You're the founder of Talking Shrimp. Your whole your genius is. Is copy and writing beautiful copy and 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 a lot of that copy helping people who are entrepreneurs and marketers um, to convert. And you write these incredible emails, which I say, like, even if you aren't interested in entrepreneurship or selling or marketing or business, like follow Laura's newsletter because you will learn a lot about how to write funny, compelling, tight copy, which is what you just like to do, and you somehow turn this into a massive
1: business. Tell me everything. okay um where shall I start well when I was five now so to a lot of people like none of this might um, seem like a late bloomer path because I did after what seemed like a long time in my early twenties after college, but was really only like a year and change. Um, I did get a job and that led to more, you know, to an internship and led to more jobs, et cetera. But I always felt like I was behind. I was not able to climb a ladder. I still, I always felt like I haven't found my thing. I haven't found my thing. And then, and then I got into writing TV promos, which was a dream job. Um, I found out there was a job that involved watching a lot of TV and writing these little things during the commercials that advertise the shows. Those were promos. And I was like, holy crap, that's a job. I need that job. And I did go and get that job. And I had it for many years. But then kind of typical of me, I got complacent. And when other people were moving on or telling me I should be moving on to something bigger, I just didn't. Um, I was just like, well, it's nice here. And I don't know what I would... I want to write something bigger and something in my voice with maybe more, more um, lasting power. Like these are things, these spots that I wrote were, they were really fun to write and it was great, but they would air for a couple of weeks and then they were gone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I going to write? You know, do I write a book? I don't have a book idea. Do I write a screenplay? I don't have a screenplay idea. I actually took a course called Writers Boot Camp three times. And never wrote. It was a screenwriting course in in Manhattan in person, and I showed up every like for every class. And the teacher, who was the same one who taught at each each session, was very amused that I kept coming back and not writing a screenplay. And then she was getting rich off of your inability to close the (laughs) deal here. You know exactly. I don't think she was getting rich, but someone (laughs) was making money off of me, and then. In around 2009, um, Marie Forlia, who I had met in years earlier in the hip hop class at Crunch, got me into the online world. She pulled me in and um, she she asked me that we were good friends who would walk home together from class, from hip hop class. And ta- I would talk about what I did. She talk about what she did. And so she knew I was a copywriter. She asked me to speak at her Um, at her first live event, which was called Rich, Happy and Hot Live. And it was 50 people in the Soho House library. And so I talked about, I I gave a talk called Five Secrets to Non-Sucky Copy. And people started coming up to me and afterwards and asking like, hey, can you help me with my website? I'm a realtor. I don't know what to put on it. I don't know what to put on my about page, et cetera. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Even though the only kind of copy I'd written was in promos and it was a totally different thing. I was like, I knew I could do better than most people at writing in a conversational tone, like a person. So I started taking clients and started building an online based business of of client works, of one to like working with people one to one on their copy for their websites, their emails, their marketing, all that kind of stuff. And Eventually pivoted once again when I got tired of having clients and really just, I hated looking at my schedule. I loved the work I did with them in like when we were in the session together, when we were on the phone or on Skype at the time in um, yeah. mm-hmm. a Google doc, I really liked what we were doing, but I hated seeing them on my calendar. Yeah. And, um, and that's when I decided to figure out Like, how can I make a living without doing these one-on-ones, without having things on my calendar, by just like having my week look like a lot of email writing, sitting on my couch and writing emails at my own pace, at my leisure. Um, I'd already figured out how to have a life where I didn't have to set an alarm. Like I didn't take any clients before noon or one, yeah. but now I wanted to take that to the next level and have lots of blank space on my calendar. So I started creating programs. I had already started the Copy Cure with Murray and that gave me a taste of what was possible. Like having a course out there that people bought and then, and it, it made a lot of money, especially partnering with Murray, because she had the infrastructure and the list. But um, to be able to make a living doing that. And then also just writing my emails as a way to sell whatever I was offering. Mm -hmm. And I pivoted to that and it made a, like, I didn't know if I was going to be able to make up the difference in income. Like if I drop my clients, am I ever, will I ever make up that income by just selling some courses, et cetera. And I created a group program, a mastermind called Shrimp Club. And that was the year that, I made my first million in a year um, because it worked. Yes. And because you were
0: doing it your way and we we share a friend, Susie Moore, who likes to talk about letting it be easy. Mm-hmm. I think as much as that, maybe we, we resist that because we think like, <laughs> no, we have to like, we have, hard means better. It's kind of true. It's kind of yeah. true. When have you ever like, sweated over something and then it came
1: out perfect you know like that it's so it's such a not it's such a myth it is um i've never valued doing it the hard way i often end up doing it the hard way because i'm inefficient or i try to skip i try to make it easy and i cut corners or skip steps and then it becomes a mess but my spirit is always about making it easy because i don't I do not locate my self-worth in working hard, in how hard I work or how busy I am. I actually feel kind of ashamed when I'm trying too hard or when I'm too busy, and value being value having it be easy. Well, it speaks to why you like to look at an empty calendar, um, yes. where
0: I might get a little nervous <laughs> when I see an empty Sorry. calendar, I'm not doing enough, how am I actually, like this is, a, I'm living a lie, like I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I'm curious, where do you think this personality of yours comes mm-hmm. from? Is it like, did you inherit this from a parent? It's it's kind of incredible, you know. I, I do, you do give yourself the credit, right? Like how yeah. you are. Maybe in our twenties, we don't recognize the value in it because every it's it's so counterculture, and and everybody wants you to like jump out of college and get the job and start working and paying your dues, and yeah. have that full busy calendar. As a sign of success, but you somehow like just were never sucked into that. You did resist yeah. that, and so what do you th- what do you think is sort of the 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 psychopathy behind that? Yeah, psych- <laughs> the,
1: um, the psychology, the, the psychology. <laughs> because <really>. it, because <laughs> some of it is a pathology, like like, like yeah. <laughs> I am a psychopath. <laughs> um, a word, a psychopath <laughs> yes. The $10. pathology. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think either my parents are like me or were, my my dad is now, um, I would say past, I usually say dead, but that's kind of jarring, but my dad is no longer with us. Um, but he, my, my mom is a pretty hard worker though. She though she likes her leisure time and never wanted to work full-time actually. She's always said, like, I don't, I would never want to have a full-time job. She likes working part-time. She likes having, she actually likes to sleep fairly late. We're a bunch of night owls. So I said, my mom isn't like me, but maybe she is, um, thinking about it out loud. And my dad is a bit, uh, he was always a bit of a rebel Mm -hmm. in the same way that I am like Not a cool rebel, not someone who was like racing cars and doing drugs or anything like that. Not wearing a leather jacket like James Dean, but, um, and I've, I've never done a drug except for like sleep gummies, um, with THC, um, and have no tattoos or anything like that. But I, I think that if... I were to take one of those personality tests, like the four, uh, what is it? Is it Gretchen Rubens? Um, There's like the questioner, the obliger, the rebel, and I forget what the other one is, but I am both a questioner and a rebel. Like I don't, I do, I question authority. I question things that I'm supposed to do. And I rebel against expectations of Mm. me for better or for worse. I mean, sometimes I've really sabotaged my, success and trajectory by by saying no I'm not going to do it because you want me to
0: mm. well you write about this in one of your chapters called baby fever where mm. you explore your ultimate decision to not to not have children and it was like you tested yourself you're like well if this was something that was illegal, would mm-hmm. I still want to not do it? Cause I am that rebel. Maybe I am drawn to things that are naughty, you know, but, uh, the answer was still no. Um, yeah. I'd love to explore that a little bit. Cause we talk about that sometimes on this show, these big life decisions that do carry a cost. Uh, many more people now are, are, are preferring to not have children and, while we've come a bit, we've come a far way, like we, I think we can accept this and acknowledge this and we don't shun people for this choice, but there's still something out there that does leave some women and men like feeling guilty, regretful, like awkward around their family and loved ones. How did you know this was not your path and how did you stick to it?
1: Yeah. So Unlike a lot of women I've talked to who are child-free by choice, I did not always know in my bones or at least didn't acknowledge that I knew that I didn't want kids. I was on the fence for a long time because... I I didn't actively want them, but I was waiting to want them because there was so much pressure to, want. you know, everyone said someday you'll change your mind. Someday you'll, you will want them. It'll hit you. Some sort of maternal longing will just sneak up on you one day and then you will want to have a kid. And it never happened. I was just waiting and waiting. And, um, It was tough because it was tough to make a decision to come to a clear, like hard no on it because I was looking everywhere for examples of older women who, you know, were now past the choice, past childbearing years and could say, I didn't have kids and I never regretted it. And I love my life. All there was, was Dame Helen Mirren. She was the only one I could find um, when I Googled and like Oprah, but people would talk about Oprah with a sadness, like Oprah, you know, she's rich. She's got an empire. Um, She's got Stedman and Gale. She's got an avocado orchard, but she still doesn't have it all. And so I was just so afraid of that regret. Women just
0: can't win. You know, when you become wealthy, you can't win. When you're not wealthy, you know, it's not even, that's not fun. You're right. Even Jennifer Aniston, you know, still Mm -hmm. the article is like,
1: is that a baby bump? You know, she just had a hamburger. Like, leave the (laughs) woman (laughs) alone. Right. And she has, it's like she's been publicly forgiven because it came out recently that she did want to have kids. So it turns out she wasn't this shrew who wouldn't give Justin through kids, You know, that was the that was the mythology around her. Like she doesn't want kids. What a what a biatch! Um, No wonder they're divorced. Like no wonder he dumped her.
0: I love how you write in that chapter about how there is also this like separation of women who, well, this perception that like if you're a woman with children versus a woman who doesn't have children, like. There's no more friendship. You can't get along. Like, you know, I want to say for the record, like you and I are different in the, in those departments, but we do get – we get together. We make yes. it happen. And I think that that is part of the fear too is that maybe like you're in a different club. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a different category of woman. And so, you know, you can't mix with other categories of women. It's sort of like when I go to pick up my kids at school, it's like the stay-at-home moms versus the working moms. Nobody really cares, but I have to say when we get to talking about work, like there's a little bit of maybe like awkwardness around that. If one person's not working, one versus person is. There's no permission to just own your decisions
1: and yeah. then move on from there. Right. And I, I will say that, that that was one of the things that occurred to me it was like, Not that I wouldn't get along with people or connect with them anymore if I didn't have kids and they did, but that I would be excluded from this club where everybody made connections. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, we're, you know, people, my sister lives in Silver Lake and her world is full of like, oh yeah, we're friends with Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell from the school. Like everybody's Uh friends with, like meets these big important people because they have kids at the same school. And I was like, oh, I'm going to miss out on a lot of those connections. And somebody assured me, um, she reassured me, like, trust me, you have as many, um, you're, you're shoved together with as many people you cannot stand or way more people you can't stand through your kids than you are with people you really like and want to make friends with. And then you also start to uh, this is one of the things that comforted me also they, they'd say, and then you also start to judge your friends because maybe you don't like the way they parent and it causes a rift. Between you. So there's no perfect solution. There is no shortage of reasons to start disliking people.
0: Okay. That's <laughs> what <laughs> I'm learning. Going back to very the very beginning of this episode when I mentioned that you grew up in New York and you still live in New York. You're a true New Yorker through and through. I love, again, talking to the authentic New Yorkers. You grew up in New York City during the 70s and 80s. The wealth disparity back then, how would you compare it to the wealth disparity now in what is still mm-hmm. the country, at least the country's most expensive city? I don't think any longer the world's, but but definitely in, in, in America.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it is so different now than it was growing up. So when, when I was a kid, I went to two private schools, um, and they were both very different in their kind of – Um, tone and ethic around money and around wealth. Like the first one was more kind of new money and what we would then call jappy. We're not allowed to say that now. I can't because I'm Jewish. But I learned that when I moved to the main line Philadelphia. Uh (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was like back then I connoted just someone who was like, I don't know, um, showy and like to go to the mall. And <laughs> back in the eighties, it's like, oh yeah, she's always going to the mall. Someone who had lots of Benetton, and then I switched to a very old money school. It was an all girls school on the Upper East Side, which was way more kind of posh and um, gentry, uh, genteel is what I would call it. Um, Brand with no labels. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. no labels. Um, drive a beat up Volvo in the Hamptons like don't show that you have a lot of wealth even though you have a Renoir in the TV room um, <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a, so there was a big difference in culture between those but between now and then like I still even at the old money really fancy school, Um, there were all kinds, there was a whole range of kids in my class. There was one of my friends, um, what her dad was a cartoonist for the New Yorker and they lived in a rent controlled apartment. There were a lot of kids of authors and artists. And, um, my dad was a shrink, but not, not a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist. Um, you know, he didn't make like buckets of money and we could still afford, they, my parents could afford to send two kids to private school and live on the Upper West Side in a classic six without being hugely wealthy, by just being comfortable. And that's just not possible anymore. Now it's like, and now there are SUVs, you know, piled up in front of the schools, um, stretching for blocks, like a a traffic jam of, of black SUVs at all these private schools. We didn't have that then. It wasn't the same. And it wasn't like everybody you knew was a hedge funders kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, don't I know it. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it's crazy. I was reading the article in New York Magazine about, it was recent, about what would it cost to live in New York in your dream, mm-hmm. in your dream scenario, and they interview yes. a bunch of twenty somethings. They did a similar article when I was in my twenties that I read, but it was um, it was cool. It was sort of like a choose your own adventure in New York as a twenty something adventure, meaning like where you would live and how you would, you know, where you spent your money and did you have kids? Did you not have kids? And at the end, it would punch out a crank out a number for you. Like, here's how much you need to earn every year. Uh, Mine was a million dollars a year and I was making (laughs) $42,000. time And I was like, okay, I guess I'm, I'm going to move stat because I could not even fathom how to get to seven figures like that. Um, by the time I was like ready to have kids. And so all this to say, fast forward to this, this new article and they, and again, back to your commentary about the wealth disparity. And this woman in the article in her twenties, her perfect life in New York was three kids in a Brooklyn Heights, brownstone full, like, you know, full
1: brownstone,
0: like, like, and Mm -hmm. wants to eat out at all the fancy restaurants. And the New York Magazine, which is where I want to fault them, they said, okay, you're going to need $700,000 a year.
1: And I was oh, like, oh, yes. What? I saw that. That was a shockingly low number. I'm like, that's like, not.
0: like, that has to be after taxes, right? Because yes. she's really making like $1.5. And then even then, right. she's making some trade offs because that's not going to get you three kids in private school. A town, town home is like $8 million. So yeah,
1: depending on the neighborhood, it can be $26 like, million. Dollars. Front,
0: public, yeah. Anyway, that, that article really frustrated me because I was like, that's, that, that's a lot of money still, but it's still like, even if so making $700,000, sadly in, you know, with those demands, you're, you're
1: struggling some days, I would imagine, unless you have yeah. you know, inheritance or family money. Well, and then you consider college, if they're planning to send their, those kids to college, that wasn't factored in. There was no, there was no more money left for college for these. None, not a cent. Um, And the one lifestyle that looked doable just from, from our point of view, but probably not the guy who wanted that lifestyle. It was like 120 something thousand. He wanted like a sick apartment in Bushwick and to party and spend a month um, or up to like two months a a year in Europe, which is, uh, which we we both have learned is cheaper than- than hanging out here. Being that Bushwick apartment uh-huh. for
0: 10000 a month, I guess. But yet, uh, not to give the New York Magazine too much of a plug, but that was an interesting <laughs> um, conversation starter of an article. It was. Uh, tell me about the title, Tough Titties. And also, everybody, just order the book. I'm going to actually give away several copies of this to the Yay. audience. So stay tuned. At the end of the episode, I'll share how you can win a free copy of Tough Titties. It's very on brand with you, Laura. It's got sort of this like 70s retro vibe going on, on the cover, but I want to know the story behind the title Tough Titties before we go. Tell us.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, for a long time, I didn't know what the book was and it was coming out like all these stories about New York and kind of my working title for a while was New Dork City, but I knew that wasn't the whole story. That was like, there are a lot of dork stories in it, but it does take us to the, you know, current day and, um, That seemed too like Judy Bloom, Tales of Fourth Grade, nothing. And then one day I found myself saying something that I say all the time. I realized, oh, I just said tough titties. I say that all the time. I, I guess because I'm still 12 and because it is my natural response to things that I am supposed to do. Like, Oh, you want me to come in, you know, at 9 a.m. and stay till <laughs> five or six? Tough titties. You want me to have kids like you do? Tough titties. You want me to, you know, pound the pavement my, my first day out of college and like score a corporate job and wear pantyhose and get to an office and wear a power suit? Tough titties. So that is where that comes from. It is just a, a natural response to that supposed to life that we talked about in the beginning. I love
0: it. And I'm so thrilled for you. I'm thrilled for everybody who's going to read this book. Laura Belgray, thank you so much. I can't wait to celebrate this book with you and everybody. Make sure to stay tuned to learn how to get a copy of Tough Titties on living your best life when you're the effing worst. (laughs) Thank you so much, Farnoosh. This is a blast. Thanks so much to Laura Belgrave for joining us. If you'd like to receive a copy of Tough Titties, I have several to give out. To enter, leave a review of this episode in the Apple Podcasts review section for this show. Tell us what you liked about our conversation and I will select a few winners at the end of next week to receive copies of Tough Titties. So you've got all of this week and all of next week to leave your reviews. I will send those reminders, but do it. Free copy. This book is really, really funny. And as Kelly Rippa said, I love Tough Titties. I didn't want it to end. I can't wait to give you a copy, leave a review, and keep listening to the show to hopefully hear your name next Friday. Until then, I hope your day is so
1: money.